thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Hello. This week we're getting revved up about cars and asking what needs to change for future car travel to be sustainable. And in the news, as Hitachi pulls the plug on a UK nuclear deal, could the answer to the country's energy crisis lie in compressed air? Also, is Blue Monday science facts or science fiction? I'm Katie Haler. I'm Chris Smith. And this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. In the UK, we get about 30% of our energy from renewable sources. This number is rising and will help to make a major contribution to reducing the country's carbon footprint. But the problem is that unlike a conventional power station, which we can turn on when we need it, we can't make the wind blow or the sun shine on demand. And when both of these things are happening, we might not actually need the energy that's being produced. Instead, what's needed is an ability to store energy on a massive scale. And this week, UK scientists have published a report that explores the feasibility of using surplus electricity to compress air into underground rock formations. The idea is that the pressurised gas can then be used later to drive turbines and generate electricity. Stuart Hazeldean is one of the authors. In the UK, we're accustomed to having electricity 24 hours a day, seven days a week. In the past, we've done that by storing energy, by having a great big pile of coal next to a coal-fired power station. And then it's been done for the past 10 or 15 years by having gas pipes uh, coming out of the North Sea gas fields. And when we wanted a bit more gas in the winter to provide heat and electricity, we've basically turned the taps on a bit more and produced more gas. But now our gas production from the North Sea is declining. We're not using coal fuel power stations anymore because of the carbon dioxide emissions. And we've gone over to building more and more wind power and more and more solar power. And with wind and with solar power, you cannot control when the electricity comes. So in essence, we need some kind of energy sponge where we can shove surplus energy during the good times so we have a supply for the bad times. That's right. And the good times and the bad times we're thinking about are particularly the difference between summer and winter. We're thinking about storing energy for months at a time. And the mechanism of that storage, what do you have in mind? Well, it's well known that uh, the storage is available for very short timescales with batteries for minutes and seconds. You can also do storage for hours and days with pumping water uphill. We're thinking of using the surplus extra electricity from when it's a very windy day or a very sunny day. We turn that into driving a compressor, compress air, put that down a borehole, and that compressed air spreads out into porous sandstone deep beneath the seabed. So it's filling up like a rigid sponge by compressing more and more air into it. 
And then how do you get the energy back from the, the gas you've compressed underground? We basically release the valve and the trapped gas under pressure in that rock uh, expands back out up the borehole and can then turn a turbine and turning the turbine generates electricity in a conventional way. Now, how much energy do you think that we can store? We've looked at how much sandstone and how much microscopic pore space there is all around the UK. So what we're looking at is storing a very large amount of energy and it's equivalent to all of the electricity supply for the UK for about six weeks at a winter rate of usage. So that's a huge amount of energy, equivalent to like 10 or 20 coal-fueled power stations running at the time. But of course, this would be much, much, much cleaner energy. In terms of practical application, though, yes, you could store all that gas, but what about all the infrastructure needed in order to liberate that energy and get it back into a useful form, electricity, that can then be brought ashore? That Wouldn't that take enormous amounts of infrastructure to do that? Well, you're right in that there'll be compressors needed offshore. We think, though, the smartest place to use this is around the large existing wind farms and the future wind farms which are being built offshore of the UK. So if we uh, develop the storage underneath these wind farms, we minimise the transport distance for the compressed air. It just goes straight down the boreholes which we uh, can reuse existing boreholes in many cases, but we've also priced in the cost of drilling new boreholes. And so we put the air down there, we bring the air back up, generate the electricity, and we use the existing wires from the wind farm to bring the electricity into the uh, national grid. Are there any geological consequences to doing this? Because people will worry, because we've seen connections between people doing deep injections for fracking, for example, and subsequent seismic outcomes. Could the same thing happen under the North Sea? I think that's a good question, and that's one of the reasons for going offshore, in that there's... uh, If we create small tremors with this activity, then people will not be very worried about those because nobody's living on top. There's no damage to property, but importantly, no damage to the site either. We know offshore there are small earth tremors all the time, and we know what amounts of rock stress triggers that. So we know how much pressure we can put in till the rock starts to move and how much pressure we can take out until the rock starts to move. The mechanics of the rock's known quite well, so we can control that. And obviously the world is bigger than just the UK. Could other people also exploit this? Well, one of the great things about this is that the the principles of what we're outlining here around the UK could be transferred and applied anywhere, that there are thick sandstones, has the opportunity to do this. So it's a very, very portable type of approach. It's fascinating, isn't it? The downside, of course, is the cost. And so when I asked Stuart about that, he told me actually that it's going to be about four times the price of what we currently pay per unit of electricity. But obviously what isn't paying the price is the planet, so we have to decide what the balance of the equation is in terms of emissions and safeguarding the future versus actually clean energy. Very interesting one to watch, definitely. Uh, The study we were discussing has been published in the journal Nature Energy this week. Now, holidaymakers at Gatwick Airport won't be forgetting the hundreds of flights cancelled recently as a result of drones flying in the area. 140,000 passengers were affected and the airline EasyJet said last week that it cost them about £10 million. So why are drones such a headache for air travel and what can we do to prevent a repeat? Tech expert and angel investor Peter Cowley is here to tell us. First up, Peter, 
what is a drone and how do they actually fly? A drone, as we've seen many times on television nowadays, is basically a flying robot, and it can weigh just a few grams, or it can weigh several tonnes, depending on its use. It's used for things like aerial photography, surveillance, etc., but it flies in the same way as a helicopter. So basically it has, it's usually almost always battery-powered. It's got multiple rotors, both for direction, stability, and uh, redundancy, and then it's connected via a radio link to the ground, and it's almost always controlled by a human being. Okay, so why are they a problem for airports then? I think the main reason is danger of a collision. Now, that could be something really important like the airspeed indicator, but I think the main problem seems to be the engines. You might remember 10 years ago, there was an aircraft crashed on the Hudson River in New York, which was made into a movie, and that was because it hit a flock of Canada geese. But you've got to bear in mind, this isn't that often. I mean, obviously, the drones around the airports are causing a problem, but there are 10 billion birds floating around, or flying around, sorry, most of the time in the US, but there are only a few hundred bird strikes per year. Actually, why do people have drones in the first place? What are they used for? Well, it's fun, isn't it? You weren't here, actually, but I flew on uh, on this programme and I uttered a word I shouldn't have done, (laughs) which had to be deleted. (laughs) The fact is, Peter, you compounded your naughtiness by then swearing because you said, I swore. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go back Uh, to that. People have them for a variety of reasons. Yeah, surveillance, um, spotting poachers, for instance, cargo. So they can actually present a real danger in this context. they are heavy. I mean, the the CAA in the States said 250 grams is okay to be dropped on from the air. (laughs) There are other studies which says it's actually a bit more than that. But can you imagine a drone dropping onto one's head? What effect that could have? And the issue, of course, is to get ingested into an engine. What could happen to that engine? So are there restrictions then on where you can fly these things? There are. It's, It's a certain distance away from an airport the people who are clearly breaking the rules the issue is trying to catch them catch the people and catch the drone so that seems like quite a difficult thing to do yes and first of all you've got to detect them and there are a couple of detection methods there's a very cheap one costs five thousand dollars it detects it tells you where it's from etc where it is but more importantly there's a way of actually modifying the radio frequency so you can get the drone to land or lose connection with the pilot. So there are various ways of doing it. Eagles have been trained to catch them. Can you imagine that? An eagle coming in and doing that. Wow. There is other drones that drop nets onto them, which, of course, then stops and drops on the ground. People are talking about shooting them, but apparently that's similar to shooting down an aircraft and is totally illegal in the States. And, of course, if you, you shot at something and the bullet went in the air, it misses it, it's going to, it may hit somebody else. There are jamming machines as well. So there are a number of ways of catching them destroying them and uh, causing them to crash, none of which really work well enough yet. Okay, so what needs to happen then? Refined uh, technological exactly, solutions? Exactly, yeah. Well, obviously some cases where people are caught and then prosecuted, some technology that's better, probably jamming, but that could cause jamming of other things as well in the area, which might affect the aircraft. There was a big disruption before Christmas. So society is very much on the side of things changing and improving. And it will happen, but it will take time. I feel this is a bit of a shame, though, because in the same way as the internet was born out of high ideals and has delivered enormous benefit to people, so have drones. But at the same time, the internet is being abused and now people are bearing down on it saying we need regulation. And they're saying the same thing about drones now, aren't they? So in the same way that the people who liked shooting, for example, have now faced enormous amounts of legislation to pursue a hobby that was safe for them, but others have abused. We, We may see a loss of freedom to fly your drone. This is societal change, isn't it? Talk about the big tech giants, Facebook and fake news, etc. There's a lot happening where society has to learn to control in the way that doesn't remove the flexibility, but at the same time makes it safe for all of us. Peter Cowley, thank you very much. Got a biological brain buster or a chemical query? 
ask the naked scientists. I just wanted to know about sleep paralysis. Is it a disorder or condition and can it be cured? How much energy is in moonlight? And could solar panel technology be used to capture this energy? When you cook food with any alcohol, how much, if any, percentage of the alcohol stays behind? Every Friday, the Naked Scientist and Cape Talk unravel the science behind those weird and wonderful questions you've always wanted to ask. Download and listen for free at thenakedscientist.com slash ask or simply search and subscribe to Ask the Naked Scientist on your favourite podcast app. Still to come, how scientists are looking out for lung cancer and how far are we from carbon neutral cars? We'll be finding out. Now, have you been feeling a little bit lower than usual in the last week or so? And could it be related to that phenomenon that's dubbed Blue Monday? Or is that just a myth conception? Georgia Mills. You may have seen a recent flurry of activity about Blue Monday, which is apparently the most depressing day of the year. According to the many websites and outlets that cover the dismal day, a mixture of things contributes to our low moods. Lack of sunshine and warmth, post-Christmas blues and lack of funds, and of course, Monday being the first day of the working week. Although this all stands to reason, it's a load of bunk. Blue Monday was made up by Sky Travel to sell winter holidays. In 2005, they put out a press release with an equation for sadness under the name of a psychologist, Cliff Arnold. The equation, pay attention, was weather plus debt minus monthly salary times time since Christmas and since failing your New Year's resolution. Got it? All that divided by low motivation times the feeling of the need to take action. If this seems a little incoherent to you, i.e. what number would weather be, you're in good company. The psychologist himself has since refuted it as total pseudoscience. Fast forward 14 years later and companies everywhere are trying to leap on the Blue Monday bandwagon and persuade people to part with their cash to cheer themselves up, willfully ignoring the fact that lack of funds is one of the reasons people are meant to be depressed in the first place. To some, the very idea of Blue Monday is offensive. Depression is a serious and long-term condition, not something that hits you on one day a year because you failed your New Year's resolutions or one that can be cured by going to the Maldives. It's also been criticised as a self-fulfilling prophecy. Tell people they'll be sad on a specific day, and they will be. Depression does strike some people much worse over winter. This is partly due to something called seasonal affective disorder, a.k.a. winter depression. The causes of this aren't totally understood, but thought to be down to a lack of sunlight in the winter months, which means a part of your brain called the hypothalamus stops working so well. This can lead to levels of important hormones like melatonin, which helps with energy, and serotonin, which can boost happiness, get lower, leading to lethargy and low mood. The good news is that lightbox treatments can be a very effective therapy, as can changing your lifestyle to be outside during those few precious hours of sunlight. But in general, conflating temporary weather gripes and post-Christmas fun gaps with genuine depression isn't particularly helpful. However, while Blue Monday sprang up as a cynical cash grab, charities are now using it as a day to reach out to people who are struggling and provide support and information, as well as raising awareness of mental illness. So that's something to be happy about. Indeed it is. Georgia Mills there. And meanwhile, if there is some suspicious sounding science that you've come across, you can let us know to chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientist and we'll gladly take a look for you. 
to lung cancer now, which is one of the world's most common malignancies. Regrettably, most of the patients that doctors see tend to present late and with relatively advanced disease. So we actually know very little about how this disease begins and therefore what signs to look out for or how to stop it. On the other hand, if we can catch it early, there's every chance we can prevent it. And with this in mind, what Sam Jaynes has managed to do at University College London is to follow a group of patients with changes in their airways that could be considered precursors to cancer. Now, some of these patients did later develop tumours, but others didn't. And by looking back at biopsies taken right at the start of the study and comparing the DNA and the chemistry of the cells, the team have begun to uncover the molecular fingerprints that signal when a cancer might be starting. As many people will know, lung cancer's a pretty fearsome disease. It's the biggest cancer killer of men and women in the UK. And sadly, 10 year survival for people that get lung cancer is only about 5%. My ambition is that we try and detect lung cancer at a much earlier stage when it's potentially curable. And secondly, understand much more about the biology of lung cancer at the earliest stages. We think if we know more about that, then we'll be able to perhaps design ways of understanding whether people need urgent treatments. And indeed, perhaps we can even develop treatments in the future which stop lung cancer forming at all. When you say whether or not people need treatment, under what circumstances might someone not need treatment? Yeah, so this is quite interesting. So one of the types of lung cancer develops in the airways, and that's called a squamous cell carcinoma. Squamous cell carcinoma appears to develop from what we call a precancerous lesion. What that means is that when we look at the lining of, of the lung, the cells look abnormal, but in fact, they're still behaving in a fairly normal manner. Some do progress to form invasive cancer, whereas some actually regress or disappear over time. And we think if we understand the difference between these lesions, then we can start to understand how we can stop cancer forming. And equally, presumably, there will be people whom you could diagnose with these precancerous lesions that are never going to turn into a cancer and therefore they don't actually need aggressive treatment. They may just be safely left and watched. That's exactly right. So around half of these lesions will actually never progress and, and in many cases just disappear. So if we were to give people treatment such as surgery or something like that for these lesions, then that's really what we call an over-treatment. Whilst the other half, they do progress to invasive cancer. So if we knew which ones they were, then we can treat the cancer or even these precancerous lesions really early. So how can you sort this out? This is a sort of wheat and chaff sorting exercise. How can you do that? Yeah, so we've spent 10 years or more now mapping out what are really previously uncharted waters of the biology of these cells that we term precancerous. And what we've looked at is the genetic code. We've also looked at how much the genes are actually expressed. And then finally, the methylation on the DNA. So these are little proteins on DNA which basically switch on or off uh, whether the DNA is being read and the proteins are being produced. And what we found is really pretty stark, and that is we can really accurately predict whether this lesion will become a cancer in the future. How did you actually do this? Because this is proper patient data, isn't it? 
Yeah, this is this is an incredible study, and we I owe a huge debt of thanks. Many of these people have actually been coming up to the hospital now for ten years or more, and what we do is a, a telescope test where we look down into the lung with a special fluorescent light, and that enables us to see these really early what we call these precancerous lesions. We can see them because they fluoresce slightly abnormally. We take a biopsy, and from those cells, we then look at their DNA, RNA, and proteins. And then, because you know the outcomes in these people, having watched them for the best part of a decade, you can go back to those samples collected really early and ask, are there any chemical messages or changes in here that would have told me, if I'd known this at day day zero, that the outcome for that patient was going to be what we've seen? That's exactly right. So so we very much worked in reverse where we followed our patients and now we know which of the lesions developed into a cancer and which disappeared. And then we've gone back and got those biopsies out of the freezer. And then we look at the DNA and RNA and proteins to cipher which of those are abnormal in the people that eventually formed cancer. And with what degree of accuracy can you make those predictions? Really pretty good. So 90% accurate. And what have you learned about how these cancers do or don't progress and why they happen in the first place? Yeah, so that's that's going to be the real challenge because the the amount of data that we've produced and and now published in our in our paper this week in Nature Medicine is enormous and actually it's going to take us and many groups around the world now to dissect out which pathways and genes we think are the most important so that we can in the future perhaps develop a therapy or a treatment to target these abnormal pathways. Let's hope so. Sam Jane's there, and the study has just been published in Nature Medicine. Now, guilt time, because at the start of the year, some of us made some resolutions that we were going to be a bit more active. And we certainly need to be, because according to one study, the average Brit spends more than 18 years of their adult life literally sitting on their backside. But why is being sedentary so bad? Izzy Clark has been investigating. James Brown kind of hit the nail on the head. Get up off of that thing. And when it comes to sedentary behaviour, getting up from that thing, whether it's a chair, sofa or any other of your favourite seats for that fact, is good for you. General moving or walking will do the trick, but in true James Brown style, I guess you could also dance till you feel better. And even if you exercise regularly, spending too much time sat down can be bad for you. I do a lot of research on sedentary behaviour, physical activity and its implications for diabetes and cardiovascular disease. That's Paddy Dempsey from the MRC Medical Research Institute in Cambridge. If we break down sitting to its actual behaviour in terms of posture and not burning very many calories, basically when we sit throughout the day we're not contracting our muscles and when we're not contracting muscles there's no metabolic demand on our body and so that means there's going to be less blood flow to those muscles and all those things in combination, so low blood flow, low demand for energy means our bodies aren't really working as efficiently as they should be in a metabolic sense and over the long term this can cause problems for our health. The opposite of sitting is being physically active and when you're being physically active you're basically stressing various bodily systems and in doing so they adapt in a positive way for our health and basically everything we do that's good for us by being physically active sitting kind of does the opposite oh dear we also talk about you know being physically active also helps your brain as well does sitting have an impact on the brain 
We do know that physical activity can boost your mood, sharpen your focus, reduce your stress, improve your sleep. And it makes sense that spending a lot of time being inactive and sitting a lot would do the opposite of that. And in a number of our clinical trials that we've run, we have seen anecdotally that participants find that at the end of a day where they've been sitting all day, they feel more fatigued, more sluggish, less mentally alert. And um, that's an important point because from a cognitive and productivity point of view, if you're sitting all day and it's affecting your productivity, it's at least an acute reason to be concerned about your mental health in the long term, but I guess also your acute productivity in the workplace. But why does sitting down actually have these negative effects? One way to think about it is sitting is a bit like turning on your brand new Jaguar or Ferrari and letting it idle all day. It sort of gets all gunked up. Things are going to go wrong. And that's not too dissimilar to what's going on in our bodies. Blood's pooling, muscles aren't contracting. And when they're not being used, that notion of use it or lose it is a simple slogan, but with profound implications for health. The large muscles of the lower body are essentially switched off and the amount of blood circulating slows dramatically. And sticking with the car analogy, our body is a bit like a gearbox, shifting from neutral, sitting down, straight to fifth gear, the equivalent of a high-intensity workout, is difficult. It's easier if we work through the gears and build up how much we move about. So how can we do that without the marathon-esque training? I guess you could break it down in terms of what your day looks like. So you get up in the morning, you might have breakfast, and then you've got to get to work. And depending on your context, you may, if you're close enough to your workplace, be able to actively commute to work. So if it's a short trip, you might be able to try walking or cycling or leaving the car at home. If it's a longer trip, you could try walking or cycling part of the way. So leave your car further away um, and walk the last bit or jump on the train and get off a stop early. So there's ways to embed activity into your commute. As someone who drives an hour to and from work, Paddy suggested I could simply park my car further away from the office so I get a bit of a walk at the beginning and end of each day. He even had a few tips of how to be more active in the office. One of the most obvious ones is something like a sit-stand desk. The basic thing there is it gives you the option to stand and sit throughout the day few other tips I suppose that people find useful are if you drink lots of water you need to go to the toilet more so we often think stay hydrated I'll get a water bottle which means now I don't need to leave my desk all day but going and getting a glass of water is a good trick to keep refilling. Plus those return trips to the bathroom actually count as being active. You could even travel to the toilets furthest away if you're feeling really daring. Another really good one in the workplace can be standing or walking meetings, so active meetings. One of the good things about them is they actually tend to be shorter. But at the end of the day, it's finding opportunities throughout the day where you can be active. But this all assumes you're in a position to leave your desk or are physically able to walk. There's actually some work out there that shows that fidgeting is beneficial because, again, you're contracting muscles more regularly than if you're just sitting there static. There are a lot of chair exercises you can do if you're upper body. A study was actually recently done with that particular point in mind where participants who were unable to actually stand up because they were amputees and they did upper body grinding instead of using your legs for a cycle, using your arms for a cycle. And they found that that was equally as beneficial as doing lower body movements. So there's all sorts of ways. And I think if there are particular functional limitations, a really good idea is to chat to a physio because they'll have all sorts of ideas to work around a certain injury or a certain limitation. And there's always a way. So there's no excuses. Looks like James Brown was right. I'm going to have to go for a run after the show. I feel a oh, bit guilty swimming. sitting down. Oh, it's swimming yesterday. I did 40 <laughs> lengths. Took me a while, but I did it. 
Okay, very impressive. I ate cake, so I probably need to do some more exercise. Anyway, Izzy Clark speaking with Paddy Dempsey there. And if you'd like to follow up on any of the stories we've been covering, the transcripts of the interviews and references are on our website, thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. In the next half an hour, we're taking a drive into the future of car travel, including asking what needs to change to keep cars on the roads in the years ahead. And first up, emissions. If you've got a car, the chances are it runs on a fossil fuel like petrol or diesel. And worldwide, cars are a leading source of greenhouse gas emissions. So how far are we from a carbon neutral car? And are greener alternatives practical and affordable? Richard Black directs the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit, a London-based think tank. So Richard, how much do cars currently impact the environment? Yeah, you've got two separate issues really with cars. One is air pollution and the other is climate change. So on the air pollution side in the UK, it's estimated that air pollution causes about 40,000 premature deaths each year. But really, that's only part of the impact because there were studies coming out last year, for example, that showing the particulates part of the air pollution can actually go across the placenta from a pregnant woman to the baby, for example. There are also studies showing impacts on dementia. So there's a health impact apart from those premature deaths caused. So that's air pollution. That's nitrogen dioxide and particulate matter, tiny particles of soot, essentially. On the climate change side, transport is responsible for just over a quarter of the UK's greenhouse gas emissions. It's actually the biggest sector now, and it's the only sector where emissions are not falling. So there's a big issue there. So what are the alternatives then? If you want a car and you don't want a petrol or a diesel... Mm, and you don't want a bicycle, which is my favourite means of transport and well. making up for all those cakes that uh, we've all been eating over the last few <laughs> last few weeks. If you'd asked this question 10 years ago, there were really three separate technologies in the running. You had biofuels, electric and hydrogen. And I think there's no doubt that electrics are winning. That's where manufacturers are putting their, their resources, most manufacturers anyway. There are now something like 3 million electric cars on the road worldwide. In the UK, less than 1% of the overall car fleet is electric or hydrogen, but that's increasing. So last year, about 1 in 30 cars bought in the UK was a plug-in model. So it's either pure electric or a plug-in hybrid. Are they affordable? How much does it cost? Yeah, so last year, moneysupermarket.com did a little study on this, and they compared the lifetime cost, so that's buying plus running, of an electric, a petrol, and a diesel. And they consider, on that basis, electric cars are already cost competitive because, yes, it costs more to buy, but actually your running costs are lower because your fuel costs are lower and your maintenance costs are much lower. Deloitte's had a survey out just last week suggesting that even on purchase price alone, we can expect them to be cost competitive within two or three years. Okay, so ballpark figure if you to buy an electric car now, how much are you showing out? It entirely depends what model you want to buy. I mean, you've got your Teslas, which are, you know, tens, tens of many tens of thousands of pounds as you want to. But it's equally um, worth pointing out that uh, what cars car of the year award last week went to a, a very economy model it's the uh, kia e nero which is a, is a small car one of the other issues that they addressed in their award is the range you know, the ideas that the electric cars don't go on forever they reckon that the kia e nero range is more than 250 miles 
So are electric cars actually greener? Can we decide where we get the electricity from to put in the car? So there have been a number of studies on this, and really you've got to take it from cradle to grave, from manufacturer through running to disposal. There was a study on this that came out last year, for example, from the um, European Climate Foundation, which looked in different European countries and asked the question now, is it greener than a petrol or diesel model? And the answer in every case was yes. Now, it depends where you are. So in France, for example, virtually all of the electricity is low carbon. It's nuclear or renewable. So if you drive a car in France and you drive the same car in, in the UK, it's going to be greener in France than in the UK. But in the UK, we're already getting more than half of our electricity from zero carbon sources, renewables and nuclear put together. So the situation is that uh, all the studies show that it's going to get better because as electricity gets greener, obviously the greenness of your driving uh, and also manufacturers are starting to get greener with things. So more and more steel, for example, is being recycled. So you're reducing emissions from that, for example. So are there any hurdles then to get zero emissions cars on the roads? Well, I mean, I think one of them is just what are people used to? You know, if you've always bought a petrol car, that's probably what you're going to do. Range is still an issue if you're in rural areas or if you're in an area that doesn't have very many charging stations. So up and down the UK, there are something like 200,000 electric cars on the road now, but only about a tenth as many charging stations. So depending on where you are, I mean, you'll have one at home as well, but, you know, depending on what your habits are. um, So that's an issue. And I think there's no massive supply side constraints. There obviously will be a finite supply of some of the materials like lithium that are used in batteries. But then again, the mining industry always explores more when demand increases. So, And also there are alternative ways of making batteries that are coming on. So you, you can't see immediate constraints from that point of view. Just going back to the point you're making about range, mm. there is this concept of range anxiety there here, is. people being yeah. really worried, how am I actually going to be able to get to the next junction yeah. on the motorway? Yeah, that's right. But the range is increasing all the time. And of course, you know, I've been in a car and I've run out of petrol. So it's not something that's unique to, uh, to electric cars. What about safety? Because electric cars can be super quiet, which is lovely on the one hand, but can it be a bit of a safety issue? Yeah, I had a personal one with this about a month or six weeks ago when I just sort of didn't look, stepped out into the lane just in the bus station near where I live and nearly got taken out by an electric taxi. I just hadn't looked. So in one sense, it's my own fault, right? But no, there is an issue here. This has been something that's flagged up in the US as well. Experts estimate that you are statistically more likely, particularly if you're sight impaired or something like this, to have the risk of collision from an electric vehicle. But the European Commission is on top of this in Europe. So within two years, basically all electric cars are going to have to have some sort of alarm fitted, which is going to have to work, particularly when you're at low speeds. Now, when you think about it, it's actually an opportunity to do something quite good because petrol or diesel cars, you're left with whatever noise they produce. With an electric car, you can think about what sort of noise is actually going to be the best one to use. So can you, for example, have a noise that tells you more accurately which direction the vehicle is coming from? Yes, you can. So you might even be able to personalise the noise your car makes in the future. Oh my Who gosh, knows? think of ringtones, right? <laughs> I'm not sure we want to go there, do we? <laughs> well, I have to leave it there for now. Richard Black from the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit. Thank you very much. Now, zero emissions cars certainly sounds like a very good idea, doesn't it? But are our towns and cities actually able to cope if, for instance, they were adopted en masse? How might the infrastructure need to change to make electric vehicles viable at that sort of scale? Well, Darren Capes is a transport expert. He's from the Institution of Engineering and Technology. So, Darren, first of all, what's involved in getting the power into the car in the first place? It's simple to say we plug it in, but what are the nuts and bolts of this? 
that simply is the answer. We plug it in and, and away it goes. But of course, there's an awful lot of technology behind that. And the way this develops, it's likely to be that more and more charging gets done at home. As range increases, the need for you to, to charge the vehicle away from home at the shops or at work will reduce and most people will find themselves charging the car overnight at home. What sort of energy demand though, Darren? When I plug my car in, how much energy am I transferring from the grid into that vehicle? What's the, the electrical tank capacity, if you like, in an electric car? It's actually quite high and it depends on the type of vehicle you buy, but it's quite high. But, but, but the issue really is how fast you charge the vehicle. And if you want to charge the vehicle very quickly, you end up with a very high amperage, you end up with a very high amount of power that's quite difficult to accommodate in a domestic setting. If you're willing to charge the vehicle overnight, then that becomes more acceptable. And you, you find that actually you could charge a vehicle overnight off a 13-amp socket, for example. Depends on the kind of way we want to do this in the future. I know lots of people who live on a street and they park their car on the street. They certainly don't have a cable that they could easily put the car into because their car's off of their property, it's on a street. So we're going to have to think about this, aren't we? Because there's not just the huge amount of energy, you know, are domestic power lines capable of delivering that amount of energy if everyone in the street plugs in their car at the same time? But there's also the how do we get access to the grid in the first place for a parked car? Absolutely, and there are two challenges there. Well, there are three challenges. The first challenge is, is people tripping over cables draped across footways, which we'd kind of like to avoid. But the two main challenges there are, are yes, how, how do you charge a vehicle in, when you live in a terraced house? Do we alter street lights? So street lights have plug-in points. Do so we put plug-in points in the ground? Do we recess them in, in the footwear? And that's really a challenge that we're, we're working on. And some of the larger cities, certainly uh, some of the boroughs in London, have, have been looking at that. The second question you raised is the important one about how we actually distribute that amount of power to, to vehicles. One line of thought suggests that actually we may double the amount of power that we need to provide to homes if every vehicle became electric. This is literally the mains cables might have to double in, in diameter in order to deliver that much energy. And it probably wouldn't be that because the batteries are becoming more efficient and the way that we use power in the home is reducing. So it won't be that, but it's of that order of magnitude. Actually providing the power in the home isn't a problem, but getting the power to the home is. And, and we have a distribution network around our cities which just is not ready for that level of electrical usage at the moment. People are talking though about maybe re-deriving and rebuilding our entire energy grid anyway with what they dub a smart grid in mind whereby we were talking earlier in the program about trying to store electricity because renewables like wind like solar produce a surfeit of power at one time but that doesn't necessarily line up with when we need the energy so we need a way to store it. People are saying car batteries are extremely good at storing large amounts of energy and then releasing large amounts of energy very quickly. Mm. Therefore maybe we see a, a future coming where people share their car battery storage capacity with the national grid so when you plug your car in you agree your car could be borrowed for a bit in energy terms to top up the grid that will definitely need us to have better supplies to homes won't it absolutely as we move towards electric vehicles vehicles will not only become electric but they'll become a lot more intelligent and, and they will have a lot more monitoring technology they will have a lot more communication technology on them so the ability of us individually to know how our vehicles are charging and how we're using them and the, the ability for the city to know collectively what the vehicles in, in the city are, are doing and how much power they're using and, and when, when it's available means that there will be a lot more opportunity to do that, to work out strategies for sharing power and keeping vehicles plugged in so that we charge them at quiet times and then lend the power back to the grid at busy times. These are all opportunities, and this is something that's really been looked at now, how, how an intelligent vehicle can act as an intelligent power source as well as just being charged from the grid.
I think the statistic I saw was that the car is on average the second most expensive asset the average family buys after the house. And it's the one that they get the least use out of because it spends more than 90% of its time just parked doing absolutely nothing. So that would be one way to make your investment go a bit further, wouldn't it? But what about the roads we drive these cars on and the cities we drive them around? Because at the moment, the infrastructure is all rigged up with the petrol engine in mind. Have people actually gone away and started to look at the feasibility of wide-scale mass adoption of these sorts of vehicles? Certainly. Again, there are some really interesting questions. I think one thing to say is that truly autonomous vehicle without any steering wheel at all is probably a long way in the future. And actually what we're looking at now is increasing levels of autonomy. And that has benefits, of course, because as we're already starting to see with things like adaptive braking and adaptive cruise control, we can build better safety systems into the vehicles by taking some of the responsibility off the driver. And autonomy can help us with that. We have to think about how vehicles react to road signs and road markings. At the moment, they don't, but people are now looking at systems where vehicles can read road signs and road markings. One argument is actually we won't need any of that. You, you can just program all the rules into the vehicle and you won't need any road markings or anything like that. But of course, road markings and road signs and junctions and pelican crossings are also of use to cyclists and pedestrians, not just vehicles. So they're likely to be with us for an awfully long time. And until we get to a a sort of golden future where vehicles are completely self-aware and completely autonomous, which is a long way away, it's very much going to be about how we accommodate autonomy and how we use the growing levels of autonomy in a city, which fundamentally, because of the other users of the city, won't change that much. It's a bit of a shame in some respects. Looks like we're going to be stuck in traffic jams for a little while longer then. Darren, thanks very much, but do stay with us. We'll hear more from Darren Capes later on in the programme. This week, we're putting the future of car travel under the microscope. And also on the way, what language do deaf people think in? Stay tuned to hear the answer. Now, many of us would literally be lost without our sat-navs, but sometimes this technology can literally lead you up the garden path and other times it loses the lock on the satellite signal at just the wrong moment and you end up on some kind of one-way system and there's no going back. Now, you could look upon it that one positive is at least there is a human behind the wheel keeping things under control. But what about autonomous cars, which will depend upon satellite navigation to determine their position? Will they end up driving into walls or at a standstill because they can't tell where they are? I went to Queen's College in Cambridge to meet Ramsey Farragher, who's developing technology to improve the accuracy of satnav positioning. First up, I asked Ramsey, when I dial up a destination on my smartphone, what's actually going on in order to get me there? Firstly, your satnav is a radio receiver that picks up satellite signals from space. They come from 20,000 kilometres away, so they're very, very weak by the time they get to your uh, satnav. And your satnav performs some maths and it allows the satnav to calculate where it is. Then the second important technological part, a layer on top of that, the actual navigation part, that routes you to the destination you want to go. So completely separate to the maths and the science of satellites and radio are algorithms that try to work out the most efficient way for you to get where you want to go from where you are. Now, in theory, this is great, but I can't be the only one who's been taken literally around the houses by my satnav. How accurate are they? <laughs> you can have all sorts of issues. So there might be a bug in the routing algorithms and the navigation part. The GPS might be suffering problems. And when you're in cities, it's quite likely that the GPS part will be suffering problems. The basic accuracy of the sort of GPS chip that's in your sat-nav is about one meter on a very good day if you're stood on top of a mountain with perfect clear view of the entire sky. 
there are really clever, really expensive, really complicated ways of processing GPS to get down to like one millimeter positioning. But that's not the stuff that's in the cheap receivers in our handsets. The problem with being in a city is that the signals can be blocked by the buildings and you want as many signals as you can possibly get. And the second more serious problem is that the signals bounce around between the buildings before they get to your device. But all of the maths that goes on inside your receiver assumes that the signals have traveled in a straight line. If the signals have bounced off buildings before your receiver picks them up, they've actually gone further than they would have done otherwise, and the calculated position is wrong. So we've come out to the back of Queen's College. Which road are we on? I think this one's called Queen's Lane, conveniently. But yes, it (laughs) runs down the side of Queen's College and round the back of St Catherine's and past King's College as well. So we're in a very narrow street, and we're in what, in my world, we call an urban canyon, And it means that, as you can see, we have a very thin strip of the sky above us. So we can't see the entire set of satellites that are up there. And that's one problem. You want a really good geometry to get a good position fix. You want the satellites to be in all angles in the sky. But these walls on either side of us are making the signals bounce repeatedly before they come down to the ground. So the signals from the sides have travelled further than they should have done. And that's why when we look at the little dot on the map, as we walk along, you'll see that it's not actually doing a good job of keeping us in the passageway. As you can see, it thinks we're inside St. Catherine's College at the moment, and we're not. And it's just moved to the other side of the street. (laughs) It's Uh, not even on the street right now. Yeah, that's bouncing around 15 metres either side of the road. If we took this receiver to the top of a mountain, it would be accurate to a couple of metres. But it's giving us a 15-metre error just because of these buildings around us. Famously, no mountains in Cambridge. (laughs) Exactly. So we're going to test not just the little blue dot, but how your phone is actually going to direct us somewhere. So King's College Chatbot is a very nice destination (laughs) to pick. Once it's found the route, we'll get going. Turn right onto King's Lane. It's certainly putting us near Queen's Lane. It still thinks we're in the middle of St Catherine's College, but it knows that we need to get ourselves onto King's Lane. Even though the GPS bit is struggling at the moment, the routing algorithms that plan the quickest route from A to B are still able to do their bit, even if the GPS is a bit wonky. Turn right onto King's Lane. Of course, this is all very well for a human. You can just use your common sense and say, I'm not in St Catherine's College, I'm outside on the street. If we are to have autonomous vehicles on the road in the mainstream, I'm guessing a robot doesn't really have that kind of common sense. That's right. Right now, today, people building these autonomous systems, have they can pick a path, right? They can either build robots that don't trust the world and think they're being lied to and maybe go against the rules sometimes or, or decide to do their own thing. That might be a dangerous path for us to go along. Or we make the sensors and the uh, technology that the robots rely on much more reliable and make them tell the truth more often. This is actually a key thing my company is doing. That the software change that we make to GPS receivers, we prevent the GPS receiver from relying to the rest of the system. So we give an error estimate that's true and we improve the accuracy as well. And so that increase in integrity is what's really important for autonomous vehicles. So they don't mind being told an inaccurate measurement as long as they're told that it has a large error on it. The big problem is if you pass some measurement to an autonomous platform which has a very small error but in fact was a very wrong measurement. Uh, So high integrity sensors are what are needed to ensure that the future autonomous vehicles are as good as we are. 
So we managed to uh, successfully navigate our way back to your office, <laughs> even though your GPS got lost. I mean, we obviously knew where we were going. How can SatNav be made more accurate? So the good news is there's three important changes that are coming that will make GPS much better for both us humans and for the coming robots as well. So the first one is simply that the more satellites there are in the sky, the better the performance you get. And we all call SatNav GPS sometimes casually. GPS is the American system. There's a Russian system, a Chinese system, and a European system. And in the future, there might be a British system after Brexit. So there'll be hundreds of satellites in the sky. That will help. The second important change coming is that the satellites do improve gradually over the decades and have new technologies in them. And there is a new signal type that is rolling out at the moment. And the fundamental performance of that new signal type is about 10 times higher than what we get today. So up on a mountain, you'll get 30 centimetre accurate positioning instead of sort of one to two metres. In cities, you'll still have the problems that we've already discussed about the signals bouncing around and them being extra path length in there and the maths being a bit wrong for cities. And so the third important change is the sort of change that my company is providing where we provide a software upgrade to GPS receivers that changes how they work, accounts for the sort of physics that goes on in the cities. That means that the receiver can cope and understand and deal with signals that come from different directions and aren't coming from the satellite itself. Over the course of the next few years, all of those things will come together to provide much better performance in cities than we have at the moment. Ramsey Farragher there. So maybe I should take my parents' advice, Chris, and uh, keep a trusty printed map in the car just in case. I do the same, Katie. Now, so far, we've looked at the scale of the pollution problem that can be caused by cars and also how electric vehicles might be able to help. But before we all go rushing off and buying one... Are the days of car ownership on a personal level and also car driving full stop numbered? Well, still with us are Richard Black from the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit and Darren Capes, who's from the Institution of Engineering and Technology. Richard, let's begin with you then. So do you think cars' days are numbered? Do you think that we're actually just not going to own cars pretty soon? I would have thought that cars will be around for a while, but I'm not sure they'll be around in such amounts as they are now, particularly not in cities. I mean, I think there's a generational thing. I mean, I've got two children in their early 20s only one of them learned to drive neither of them actually drives and most of their friends don't want to drive someone said to me the other day my daughter's not gonna i'm not gonna bother to urge her to get driving lessons because she'll never need to drive that's right i mean I, i don't have a car i belong to a car share scheme i use it once in a blue moon it's so much easier than owning a car darren yeah i think that's right there's a lot of interest now in what we call mobility as a service you basically use the car when you need it and you maybe don't own it. And this is kind of what car share is. And I think as technology grows, that will just get more complex. And we may well see the point which the car turns up, it takes you for the journey you want, you get out and it goes off and it fulfills somebody else's journey. I mean, notwithstanding what we were saying earlier about the idea of you're lending your car battery to the national grid to help that topped up. I must admit I do feel a significant pang of guilt when I'm sitting in the traffic jam in my car with my one passenger, me, in it Mm. and there's this enormous jam with I don't know how many hundreds of cars that look identical. Having a car share scheme where cars arrive, pick you up, take you where you want to go would give all the convenience and none of the disadvantages, wouldn't it? I think it's also worth remembering that cars may get a lot more expensive as they get more technology on board. You can't imagine somebody like EasyJet buying a very high-tech, very expensive aeroplane and only using it 5% of the time, which is kind of what we do with cars. 
So in the future, it may be that to get the benefits from the technology, cars will become more expensive and they will make more sense as a shared proposition. Richard? Yeah, I think it's that fact that you mentioned earlier, Chris, that does make a nonsense of the way we do things now. As you said, cars are expensive and we leave them on the driveway, so why not share them? One key thing here about autonomous cars is safety. We've already had these stories from the States, for example, where you know uh, cars that are being driven in autonomous mode have collided with pedestrians. And you don't need that to happen too often before politicians, not to mention people, become I'm very, very scared of that. So I'm comfortable. I'm going to be driving for a little while yet. I'm pretty confident, though, that when my current car, which is a diesel car, eventually bites the dust, it'll probably go on forever because it's a diesel car, my next vehicle, I'm going to buy an electric car. So that's music to your ears, I presume there, Richard. We'll have to leave it there. That was Richard Black and Darren Capes. And we've just got time for question of the week. Mariana Campos has been giving some thought to Bree's question. If a person is born completely deaf and can't hear anything... Which language do they think in? We put this question on our forum and one of the answers came from Doug, who says he's profoundly deaf and thinks in associations and pictures. He doesn't think, I'm going to get a glass of water. He just tends to visualise the glass of water and associate it with thirst. To elaborate on this, we got in touch with Dr. Mairead McSweeney, who's the director of the Deafness, Cognition and Language Research Centre at University College London. The answer to this question very much depends on the type of communication the deaf person uses in their daily life. Their language choices and preferences can depend on many different factors. For example, whether they were born deaf or became deaf later in life, how much useful information they can hear from either hearing aids or cochlear implants, and whether they were exposed to a sign language early. Sign languages are interesting because they're different in different countries. Deaf people are most likely to think in their dominant, their most used language, which could be a signed or spoken language. But how exactly are the thoughts shaped in their minds? When deaf people think in sign language, they often report having a motoric feeling of themselves signing. This could be thought of as inner sign, in the same way that hearing people often talk about inner speech. Others think in spoken language, either that they may be able to feel the mouth movements of speech or they can visualise lip patterns or in some cases hear the speech. This auditory imagery is most likely to reflect their own auditory experience of speech. Deaf people have also reported switching between imagining themselves communicating and imagining perceiving or watching the communication of others. Some deaf people have even reported that they think in written English, describing visualising subtitles or Star Wars text disappearing off into the distance. Oh, that would certainly make everyday tasks more interesting. Deaf people also report thinking in different languages depending on what they're thinking about. A deaf person who uses sign language at home with their family might think of a shopping list in sign language, but if they use speech at work, they might be more likely to report thinking about their work-related tasks in speech. The deaf population is very diverse, and it's these differences in language backgrounds and personal experience that affect which languages they acquire and therefore what language they think in. I can relate to that. Being born in Brazil, when I speak to my parents or reminisce my childhood, I'm thinking in Portuguese. But in my everyday life, I think and even dream in English. Next week, we'll be sniffing out an answer to this question from Richard. Why does a candle start to make more smoke and smell when it's blown out? 
And we'll look forward to shedding a little light on that soon. If you can help, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on the forum, thenakedscientist.com slash forum. Just a quick note before we go about our donation drive. Don't forget we are fundraising. It's a very important year for us, this one, because in 2020, the project that became The Naked Scientist will be 20. We have some very ambitious and very exciting things we'd like to do We need your help to do them. If you would kindly help to support the project, we'd be very grateful. You go to nakedscientist.com forward slash donate to do that. And that's it for this week. And do join us at the same time next week when you're going to need your wits about you because we're going to be delving in to the mysterious world that is mind control. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Smith. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.